Our text today is found in Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be reading verses 22 through 27. As you're finding that text, um, a story, if you would, in 1831, there was a Kentucky slave named Tico Davids, and he made a break for the free state of Ohio by trying to swim across the Ohio River. His master trailed close behind him, but eventually lost sight of David's and couldn't find any trace of him. And the slave owner returned to his, um, his Kentucky farm enraged, exclaiming to his friends that David's must have gone off on an underground road. Well, that name, Underground Road, sort of stuck. And the legend of the Underground Railroad began. The Underground Railroad would eventually etch itself into the national consciousness, mostly due to the efforts of, to the efforts of uh, one celebrated conductor named Harriet Tubman. Tubman escaped slavery in 1849, but was not satisfied with her own freedom. Despite a $40,000 reward offered to her for her capture, she returned 19 times into the Deep South, leading 300 other slaves to freedom. She became known thus as the Black Moses. And she gave credit for the success of her efforts to God, saying, I'm only, I'm going to hold steady on you, and you've got to see me through. The remarkable thing about Tubman is that she didn't have to do it. Once she was free back in 1849, she had every right to enjoy her freedom and live her life for herself. But she saw her freedom as a gift that wasn't to be kept to itself, that she wasn't to keep to herself. She had to use her her freedom for the sake of others. She felt that one of the responsibilities of her freedom demanded demanded that she go back into slave country, not as a slave herself, but as one who would go and try to help rescue fellow slaves. So today's text of Scripture, which is found in Matthew 17, verses 22 to 27, which I mentioned earlier, also speaks of freedom. It speaks of the privileges of that freedom, but it also speaks of the responsibilities of that freedom. So please, if you haven't already, turn to that passage and stand, if you would, as we prepare to read it. We stand at Harbin's in the honor of the reading of God's Word because we believe with all of our heart that the Bible is God's infallible, inerrant word given to his people. And we believe that every word of this book is true, and we are to follow it, we are to obey it. And it carries as much authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here in the flesh speaking to us. So let's read Matthew chapter 17. We're going to begin with verse 22. The word of the Lord says, As they were gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, 
not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning as we now come and study this short passage of Scripture that you would open up our minds to understand all it is that Jesus is saying in this text which doesn't seem to have a whole lot in it. There is a lot. And so God, I pray that you would give me a mouth to speak and give all of us ears to hear. Without the Holy Spirit's help, we are helpless. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, do a work in us so that we can hear and receive your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We see in the very beginning of today's text that Jesus and his disciples have returned to Galilee. They had been in Tyre and Sidon, if you remember, and then the Decapolis, and then Caesarea Philippi. And now he and the disciples are on their way back to their home base of operations, Capernaum of Galilee. And while on the way back, Jesus yet again foretells of his death and his resurrection. Verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Then we have the response of the disciples, and they were greatly distressed. This is the second time in a relatively short span of time that Jesus has clearly laid out for the disciples the fact that he was to die and then later rise again. The first time was in Matthew 16, verse 21, And uh, the reaction of the disciples, if you'll remember, as Peter sort of is their spokesperson, was that they took Jesus aside, Peter took Jesus aside, and rebuked him while all the other disciples were watching on. He did that only to himself then be sharply rebuked by Jesus. Understandably then, their reaction to this second prediction is quite different. Our text today says they were greatly distressed, they were upset. Mark and Luke tell us in Mark chapter 9 verse 32 and in Luke chapter 9 verse 45 that they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. They, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They were, and they were afraid to ask him. They, they knew what happened last time they spoke up about this strange thing that Jesus was saying about dying and rising again. And Luke goes on to tell us in his version in Luke chapter 9 verse 45 that it was concealed from them. So they might not perceive it. In other words, God sovereignly was concealing it from them. He was not allowing them to have a full understanding of what it was Jesus was saying. They just didn't get what Jesus was saying. It upset them because as fallen men, as fallen men, they did not have the spiritual capacity to get it, to understand it. To embrace it. Matter of fact, no man, even today, can embrace the foolishness of the cross without the intervention of God. And for the disciples, this foolishness was rocking their world. It was upsetting their presuppositions about Messiah and what Messiah was to do. But Jesus, he knows exactly what he's doing, what his Father's will is, and now he begins to close out. This is the beginning of the end of his ministry in Galilee. He's beginning to close out his Galilean ministry and begins to set his course resolutely for Jerusalem, for the cross. 
And it's after they arrive in this hometown of Capernaum that we have this, what I think is seemingly an insignificant incident in verses 24 to 27. It's an incident only recorded by Matthew. But as we will see, it's not insignificant. Instead, it sheds even more light on who Jesus is, but also on who his disciples are. And it has strong implications for how we live the Christian life. So, let's examine these verses during the rest of our time this morning. Verse 24. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? What a welcome. You know, they've been gone for a little while now, and they come back into town, and the local tax collector meets them probably at the town gate and approaches Peter about whether or not Jesus is going to pay his taxes. Now, to understand what's being communicated in, this, in the whole of today's text, we need to understand what this tax is, this two drachma tax. Matthew doesn't spend much time explaining it to us because you've got to remember he's writing to a mainly Jewish audience. And they would have known exactly what this tax was. But we need some help. First, it's very important that we understand that this is not, not a tax levied by the Roman government. Instead, this is a Jewish tax. It was, called, it was also called the temple tax. And it was based loosely on Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. It required that every Jewish male, 20 years and up, pay a yearly tax of two drachma, which is about one or two days worth of wages, for the upkeep of the temple. The only exceptions were given to priests, recognized rabbis, and slaves. Now you can read about this tax in other historical sources like Josephus. And that's how we can understand it a little more. But that's the type of tax that they're asking Jesus to pay. So we need to understand again, this is not a Roman tax, but a Jewish tax. And it was considered a patriotic and loyal act to pay it. So when the tax collectors come to to Peter and ask if Jesus is going to pay the tax, they were simultaneously communicating a couple of different things. Number one, uh, they were not so subtly stating that they didn't view Jesus as a true rabbi or else he would be exempt. The fact that they're asking Jesus to pay the tax, they're saying that we don't actually view him as as a real rabbi. Secondly, by asking if Jesus paid the tax, they were testing him again. They were testing his loyalty to the temple. Probably by now, there were already rumors floating around about Jesus and the temple. You remember Jesus early on in his ministry in John chapter 2 verse 19. After the first cleansing of the temple, he said this. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, he was talking about the temple of his own body. But by the time Jesus was brought to trial at the Sanhedrin, we read in Matthew 26, verse 61, that the people were using these words of Jesus to accuse him of being anti-temple, which in the mind of a first century Jew was in essence to be anti-Jewish and anti-God. So unlike later in Matthew 22, when Jewish leaders try to trap Jesus in regards to paying taxes to Caesar, this issue is simply about whether or not Jesus is a good law-abiding, temple-supporting Jew, as evidenced by paying the temple tax, the two drachma tax. So in verse 25, Peter responds in the affirmative. Yes, my master pays the tax. But when Peter goes into the house, Jesus is going to amplify Peter's understanding of why, why he pays 
the tax. Verse 25. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. In other words, Jesus supernaturally knew the conversation that Peter had just had. Jesus speaks to him first saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? To teach what he's about to teach, Jesus is making an analogy between a land or a city under the rule of a human king and the temple which is under the rule of God. Jesus asks if an earthly king levies taxes on his own children, on his own sons, or on other people outside of his family. And Peter responds logically in verse 26, from others. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Then the sons are free. That little five-word sentence is powerful. Then the sons are free. The analogy is simple. Just as an earthly king's sons are exempt from taxes for the upkeep of the earthly king's house or castle or whatever else, so too the ruler of the temple, God, exempts his sons from taxes to upkeep his house. Jesus declares that the sons are free, and in doing so, the first thing Jesus is showing us is simply this. His authority as the unique Son of God. The first thing Jesus is showing us in today's text is, number one, His authority as the unique Son of God. Jesus is clearly claiming here that He Himself is the Son of the ruler of the temple, and the ruler of the temple is God. Therefore, He is the Son of God. This tracks right along with what we've seen in recent chapters. Peter declaring Jesus to be the Son of God and uh, Son of the living God in Matthew 16, verse 16. And then the Father declaring it on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 5. And now Jesus subtly but clearly declaring his sonship yet again. And he is saying that as Son, he does not have to pay the tax. He could refuse the temple tax if he wanted to because as son, he is Lord over the temple. This is very similar to what we saw back in Matthew 12. You remember when we preached in Matthew 12? You may not remember because I looked it up. That was October 27th of 2013, okay? But back when we preached through Matthew 12 in the same series, and if you want to go listen to that sermon, you can. It's on our podcast. In that text, we saw that Jesus and the disciples were plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath and eating them only to be confronted by the Pharisees who said they were violating the Sabbath. And Jesus responded in that text by first showing them from the Old Testament that they were not violating the spirit of the Sabbath and then by secondly declaring that the Sabbath was actually, who the Sabbath was actually for and then finally by showing them in Matthew 12, 8 that he, the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath. Every Jew knew that the Sabbath was instituted by God alone. Thus, for Christ to claim lordship, rule, authority over the Sabbath was to claim equality with God. In that same section of Matthew chapter 12 and verse 6, we have these amazing words that Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And he's referring to himself. Something greater than the temple is here. So Jesus in that text and in today's text is declaring that he is Lord, ruler, authority over the temple as well. But he's more than just the one who has all authority over the temple. He himself, as the disciples will one day understand, more fully at least, is himself the replacement of the temple. Just as he is of the Sabbath. 
He is the fulfillment of the temple. Another reason he doesn't have to pay the tax is that the temple was a temporary shadow pointing to himself. Jesus teaches this in John chapter 2, verse 19, which I alluded to earlier, and in the following verses after that. Let me read these for you. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. Verse 21, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The disciples remembered. They remembered after Jesus' resurrection, they remembered two things. Number one, the scripture that has to refer to the Old Testament scriptures. They remembered the scripture that is the Old Testament, what the Old Testament said about the temple and its temporary nature. And they remembered what Jesus had spoken. So the light that he was shedding on the Old Testament, particularly the light of what he said in chapter 2, verse 19, that he himself is the temple. The first chapters of John declare that Jesus is the new tabernacle. He is the new temple. He's even the new mount of God. And thus to trust in him and to worship him and through him, that makes us worshipers of God who worship in spirit and in truth. What the disciples don't yet fully realize is That when Jesus goes to that old rugged cross and pours out his blood and is buried in that cold tomb and rises again in glory three days later, the temple work at that point is done. It's done. Jesus is the final and finished sacrifice. Jesus is the final and forever high priest. Jesus, in Jesus is the final and free access to the throne of grace. And in Jesus we find the final and full presence of God with his people, Emmanuel, God with us. And just as the glory of God filled the temple and in the, in the tabernacle, we read in John chapter 1 verse 14 that in Jesus we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is greater than the temple. He is the ultimate meeting meeting place between man and God. Therefore, when he, the substance, arrives, there is now no need for the shadow. The temple had served its purpose, and its purpose was to point to Jesus. Now, Jesus subtly hints of his authority over the temple by claiming exemption to the temple tax due to his status as a son. But notice something here. Jesus says, sons, plural, By doing so, Jesus is including his disciples into the analogy. We know this because the context shows it to us. For later in verse 27, Jesus instructs Peter to go and miraculously get the money for the tax. And at the end of verse 27, he says, Give it to them for me and for yourself. So my next point this morning is simply this. Jesus is showing us not only his authority as a unique son of God, but secondly... Our privilege as adopted sons of God. Our privilege as adopted sons of God. Jesus says that he, as God's unique son, is free from the law of the temple tax. But so too are all who are united to him. The sons, plural, are free. All true followers of Christ Jesus have been supernaturally united to the unique Son of God and by virtue of that union are themselves adopted sons of God. John 1 verse 12. 
To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And we are not just adopted sons, but we are also co-heirs with Christ. The inheritance that was reserved for the firstborn has been shared with all of us. Romans 8.15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Listen to that text again. If you want to read back over it, you can. But it involves the whole trinity. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So spirit, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, the heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, we have been amazingly folded into the Trinitarian love of God. It's absolutely stunning when we get, begin to think about who we are in Christ. So in today's text, by calling Peter and by implication the rest of the disciples sons, Jesus is also saying that there are some who are not sons. Let me say that again. By calling Peter and those who follow him sons, he's also at the same time saying that there's some that are not sons. Remember, this is not an issue of Roman taxes. It is an inter-Jewish tax issue. And thus, if we follow Jesus' analogy, he is declaring that some in the nation of Israel are sons. But some, as Jesus says, others are not. This word others means strangers or foreigners. Jesus is drawing a dividing line down the middle of the Jewish people and is saying, some are sons, some are foreigners. And Jesus is absolutely consistent with John the Baptist who went before him and Paul who comes after him. John the Baptist, after boldly calling on the Jewish people to repent of their sins, says this, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And later Paul would say these stunning words in Romans 9 verses 6 and 7. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So what John the Baptist is saying and what Paul is saying is that it's possible to have Abrahamic DNA but not be a child of Abraham. The Jewish people were split down the middle by John the Baptist and by Paul and more importantly by Jesus Christ himself. Our Lord is even clearer in John chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, now let me just say this real quick. We see a, a, a very close tie between sonship and freedom. The sons are free. So, he will, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let me continue. Verse 33 of John chapter 8. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say, You will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Verse 37. This is Jesus speaking. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Listen to that. He says, I know. I know you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do not have, 
and you do, do what you have heard from your father. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if, Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. So in the same passage, within seconds of each other, Jesus says, yes, you're children of Abraham. No, you're not children of Abraham. So let's track with Jesus here. Verse 41, you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, and let me pause right there. Please notice how child of Abraham is used synonymously by Jesus and the Jews with child of God. So to be a child of Abraham is to be a child of God. So let me back up again. If God were your father, you would, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Again, in John 8, Jesus is drawing a dividing line in the middle of the Jewish people. Those who repent, who do receive him and believe in him, are counted as sons, children, heirs, and are brought in to enjoy the benefits of sonship. But those who do not repent, who reject him, and who continue in unbelief, are counted as strangers, aliens, foreigners, and are cut off from the benefits of sonship. Peter read earlier, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. In verse 7 of that same passage, Paul says to all who hope in him, who all who hope in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, he says this, You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So heirs. Heirs have the privilege of freedom. That's the privilege of being an heir. We are free. Free from sin, Romans 6, 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. And freedom from the law, Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. So Christ Jesus died a heinous death to free us from the shackles of sin. And Christ Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life to free us from the demands of the law. We are free indeed, friends, if we are united to Christ Jesus. So we must guard against returning to the shadowy chains Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Meaning, don't return to the law and the works-based understanding of your relationship with God, one that puts its focus on what you can do. Don't go there. And then in Colossians 2.16, Paul says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And then in verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Regulations and laws and rules and temple taxes can do nothing to help you curb the flesh or come to God. They cannot save, they cannot sanctify. So we cannot return to the shadowy chains of legalism and law, nor should we return to the deadly shackles of sin. 1 Peter 2, 16, a verse that Deemer read earlier, live as people who are free, 
Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. James 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So our freedom doesn't free us to sin, it frees us from sin. Free men in Christ have received new hearts with new desires and new appetites and a new will. That's the law of Christ. That's the law of liberty that now flows internally from the heart, not externally from what we can or cannot do. Therefore, the civil and ceremonial laws of the old covenant that foreshadowed Christ, including the temple, have been fulfilled and set aside. And now the eternal moral law of God lived out by Christ is etched on the hearts of all true and free children of God. So we have great freedom in Christ. But with great freedom comes great responsibility, and that's my last point. Jesus is showing us his authority as a unique son of God. He's also showing us our privilege as adopted sons of God. But finally, he's showing us our responsibility as adopted sons of God. Our responsibility. So after declaring that the sons are free from the temple tax, Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, However, he's just said, I don't have to pay the tax. You don't have to pay the tax. However, verse 27, not to, to, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. We are left to assume that Peter goes off and does exactly as the Lord commands and that Jesus miraculously, miraculously provides this half-swallowed shekel, which, by the way, a, a one shekel was worth four drachmas, so it would have paid for he and, um, and Jesus. But we don't have to assume what Jesus' motive was. He pays the tax, and it says here, not to give offense to them. Why not offend them? Because to offend the Jews on this relatively minor issue would create an obstacle that would obscure his primary mission. Jesus knows that an argument over freedom from the temple tax could potentially drown out his gospel words and his works. The Greek word here, offense, is the word skandalizo. You're probably familiar with it. It's where we get our word scandalized from. It literally means to cause one to stumble. Jesus does not want his freedom or the freedom of his disciples, and that includes you and me, to be a hindrance or a stumbling block to others. This has huge implications for us as believers. Huge Not only are we not to use our freedom to indulge the flesh, which is obvious. Likewise, we are not to use our freedom in a way that might cause others to stumble and thereby obscure the gospel. That means we we need to be willing to restrict our freedom for the sake of others. For example, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is dealing with an issue of meat sacrificed to idols. Paul's conscience is clear, for he knows that an idol has no real existence. But we read in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7, Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now listen to this, verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 8. Food will not commend us to God. So, So Paul is saying no adherence to outward rules makes us closer to God. 
And he continues, we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Verse 9, but, here's the big exception, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And then continuing in verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, food makes my brother stumble. This word here for stumble is the exact same Greek word, skandalizo. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble, skandalizo. I will not scandalize my brothers through my freedom. Our freedom is real. But there are some who are weak in the faith and some who are not yet in the faith who do not grasp the depth or, the under, or a full understanding of Christian freedom. So it takes wisdom and discernment to use our freedom in a way to where we're not becoming a hindrance to the gospel. Are we willing to do or not to do what we are not required to do or not to do for the sake of the gospel? Speaking of his own personal rights as a believer and as an apostle, Paul makes it clear later in 1 Corinthians 9. He says that he was willing to, and this is his words now, endure anything, listen to this, endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, ironically, churches have taken that text and taken it out of context to actually justify doing whatever the heck you want to do. When Paul's using it the way it's supposed to be used, because Paul spoke it, saying, no, I'm willing to restrict my freedom for the sake of others and for the spread of the gospel. Listen, friends, the gospel is more important than your freedom and my freedom. In verses 24 through 27 of today's text, Jesus would rather pay an obsolete tax for an obsolete building that he had every right not to pay than to keep people from seeing the truth of what he was about to do as outlined in verses 22 and 23 of today's text. Here's the key, friends. Listen closely. Our Christian freedom is not for us. Our Christian freedom is not for us. It's for others and for Christ. Like Harriet Tubman, our freedom should be seen not as something for ourselves, but as an opportunity to bless others through the gospel. The moment you think your freedom is about you is the moment you slip up. Galatians 5, Galatians has so much to say about Christian freedom. Galatians 5, 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but listen to this, through love, Serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 14 also has much to say about this, but we don't have time to examine that whole passage today. Let me just read a few verses, starting in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block 
or hindrance in the way of our brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do you not destroy the one for whom Christ died? And then in verse 19, listen to this. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. He doesn't say, so let us pursue freedom, brothers. No. Let us pursue peace and mutual upbuilding, which means we may have to restrict our freedoms. Oh, friends, let us see and savor Jesus Christ, our elder brother, who lived out this principle perfectly, humbly setting aside his rights for the sake of his mission. So in conclusion, brothers, in today's text, Jesus is showing us, number one, his authority as the unique son of God, our privilege as adopted sons of God, and our responsibility as adopted sons of God. Our responsibility is to use our freedom for the sake of others in the church and for the sake of the gospel in the world. Let us, like Miss Tubman, use our freedom to to lead others to freedom. Let us use our freedom to lead others to freedom. So believer, use your freedom wisely. Use it to build others up. Use it to grow in love. Use it to grow in your appetite for the word. Use it to proclaim the life-giving, freedom-securing, slavery-defeating gospel of Jesus Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning and you have never tasted this freedom, I implore you to stop putting your hope in yourself or trusting in whatever good deeds you can muster or in your family heritage or in anything else outside of Christ. If you have not repented of your sin and turned to Christ alone as your Lord, trusting in him, believing that he forgave your sins the moment he absorbed God's wrath for sin on the cross, resting in him, believing that he lived for you the righteous law-keeping life that you could not live, and and sought him, believing that God indeed did raise him from the dead, then I beg you to do that today. Come, place your faith in Christ. Come, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, friend, you are free. Indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are so many different aspects of the Christian life that are difficult to walk through. We're trying to live a life driven by, fueled by the Holy Spirit who has etched your moral law on our hearts. The law of love, the law of liberty, the law of freedom. And we struggle. And we're so tempted to to put some rules in place that'll just help us a little bit. Because we can do that. Father, help us to see that part of being free is being free from work. We are in a Sabbath rest if we are in Christ. We no longer have to work. Not for our salvation, at least. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to live as people who are free. But we are still in bodies that have indwelling sin, sin that hasn't yet been put to death. And we are called to mortify, mortify, kill that sin. And so we're always going to be tempted to use our freedom for something we shouldn't use it for. We're always going to be tempted to call 
what in our eyes is a minor sin, Christian freedom. Oh Lord, keep us from calling anything sinful Christian freedom. And help us. Help us in this room, in this body of believers to use our freedom for one another. To build each other up. Not to tear each other down. As so often happens on issues of freedom and conscience. Help us to build one another up in the grace of God. For the glory of God. Father, that's our desire. For you to get glory out of this church body. And then outside these walls... Lord, I pray the world, as Deemer prayed earlier, would see something different in us. If our Christian freedom allows us to be indistinct from the world, it's not Christian freedom. Help us to see, Lord, that the freedom we have as sons frees us to live differently, to live at peace, to not have to conform to the world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So, Father, we pray that you do that in us. We need your help. We need your enabling. Holy Spirit, we ask, work in us this week. Take this word. Apply it to our hearts. Speak, O Lord, is what we sang before we went into the sermon. We ask you to keep speaking all week long through your word because that's where you speak infallibly. So let let us go now, Lord. Let us sing this last song to you. Let our, our worship be sincere and true. And let us be people who use our our freedom for the sake of others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.